Let me add my welcome. There's a few new faces out there. Uh, my name is Paul, the minister here, and we're working our way through 1 Corinthians, so please keep your Bibles open at page 811. I don't know whether you remember this day. I, I remember it quite well. Uh, I was uh, 15, and it was a January day in 1986. And I sat in front of the TV, and not for the first time, for the ninth time, a space shuttle was launched into space. It was called the, the Challenger. And if you, like me, were sat, sat there watching your TV screens, you'd have seen this about 73 seconds, exactly 73 seconds later. Uh, that sort of deep blue Florida sky was suddenly turned into this blazing orange smoke-ridden sky. And chunks of metal came plummeting towards the ocean as before the watching world, the challenges just blew up mid-air. And amongst all that debris were seven people, the crew of Challenger. It was just devastating. Now the investigations that followed soon revealed that there was serious human error and misjudgment. What had happened was that this, the top management had been warned by the experts not to launch that shuttle. They'd been warned not once, not twice, not three times. They'd been warned many, many, many times it was not fit to be launched. But these guys said, no, we've done it before. We know what we're doing. We're safe. And so they just blindly refused to listen. They didn't listen to the warnings. And what happened? Absolute tragedy. Why do I share that tonight? I share that tonight because tonight our passage confronts us head on with warnings that, that you and I can either choose to ignore or to listen to. See, for many of us, our Christian lives are a bit like uh, being on that space shuttle. We, we could be heading for disaster. It could all look good on the outside. Uh, we could play the Christian. We could wear the space suits. We could sit in church. We can talk the talk, but... We could be heading for disaster. And this passage tonight warns us, and I'm pleading with you to, to listen to the warnings. I'm pleading with you to listen to the warning. Uh, some of us think we're just, we're okay, we're just complacent. You know, I'm okay, I know it all, I've experienced it all, I've done it before, I've done many things in church, I've been to church a thousand times, I'll be okay on that last day. Some of us are slipping into idolatry. You know, we've got our God compartment in life. We've got our Jesus tag. But if you look at your calendar, if you look at your bank statements, you focus most of your time, most of your energy, most of your money, most of your headspace on anything but God. There's too many Christians think they know best. People warn them, God warns them, but they just refuse to listen. And the consequences are horrific. We're not talking about a few bodies falling amongst the wreckage of a space shuttle. We're talking about people, lots of people, yes, millions of people, who are heading for hell. Including some people who say, but Lord, Lord, I sat in church all those times. Tonight God gives two warnings that will keep us following Jesus to the end. Paul kind of rolls up his sleeve and says the hard words. Just look at verse 1 with me of chapter 10. I don't want you to be ignorant, 
of the fact, brothers. I don't want you to be ignorant. It's ironic because the Corinthian church think that they are knowledgeable. They think they have everything and they think they know everything. And yet he calls them ignorant. Uh, to be ignorant means that you know something but you choose to ignore it. You choose to forget it. You choose not to act on it. And he's going, you must have read your Old Testament. You must know the facts. Please don't miss, miss the significance. Let me say up front, tonight is a really hard sermon to preach because I'd just like to be Mr. Nice Guy and I'd like to be the good cop. I'd like to preach, preach nice, sort of encouraging sermons every week that will just warm our hearts and we leave here feeling upbeat. But it's not always what God teaches. And part of my job and my responsibility as your pastor is to say the hard things and to warn you. Because warnings really are the, the most loving thing you can do for somebody. You know, warning crocodiles in this river, warning a cyclone, warning a hole in the road. It's the most loving thing to warn people. And I'm saying these words tonight because I love you and I want to warn you and me. Because I want us all to be in eternity. It's a hard sermon to preach. It's a hard sermon to hear because we're wired differently. Some of us, as a lookout, you know, they lack assurance. They are always worried. Am I okay with God? And a sermon like this can just catapult you into despair. Uh, but there's other people who are sort of super confident. And I'm okay, I'm doing alright, God won't mind. And often when you preach these sermons, the people who really need to hear the warnings don't hear the warnings, and the people who need to hear the encouragements just hear the warnings, and they, they, they spiral downwards and downwards and downwards. I'm just flagging that because I can't do anything about that, except pray that God will say to you what you need to hear tonight. So firstly, the warning. Warning number one is against complacency. Uh, come back in time to a time when Israel were in the wilderness and they'd just come out of slavery in Egypt. God had delivered them from Pharaoh. Pharaoh made Osama bin Laden look like Mother Teresa. Uh, they were God's people and yet look at verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered over the desert. It's that vivid picture of bodies just strewn everywhere in the desert. And you've got to ask why. I mean, God rescued people only to destroy them. Why would God do that? What led to their downfall? First, listen carefully. It is complacency. It is pride. It's misplaced confidence. Uh, the Israelites took all the privileges. They took all the privileges but no responsibility. They just thought, hey, we're okay. We're God's people. We'll be okay in the end. And it's that disease called complacency that is rampant in churches today. Just look what the Israelites had. Uh, verse 1, they had God's presence. Our forefathers were all under the cloud. If you know your Bibles, uh, God's presence, God's guidance was a cloud by day, a fire by night. God was with them. Uh, they'd experienced God's deliverance in verse 1. And they all passed through the sea. Exodus 14, the great rescue through the Red Sea. The, the Israelites cross on dry land. Uh, the the non-Israelites, the Egyptians, are swept away. And according to verse 2, it's a kind of baptism. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Not because of the water, but because once they'd gone through that Red Sea, they had a, a new identity, a new allegiance. They were God's people. They'd experienced God's presence. They'd experienced God's deliverance. They'd experienced God's provision. Verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Again, they grumbled, we've got no food and God provided. We've got no water and God provided. See, God met every need 
They'd experienced God's provision and God's goodness and God's faithfulness. Uh, what's more, according to verse 4, Christ was with them. And that rock was Christ. Uh, please don't get bogged down here debating whether the pre-existent Christ was there with them. That's not the point. The point is that somehow Christ was there in their midst providing for them. Now, think about those privileges. They had God's presence, God's deliverance, God's provision. They'd experienced God, experienced God's favour. They had everything to know God, to love God, to worship God. But they never made it to the promised land. They never made it to the promised land. Only two adults did, Joshua and Caleb. Most, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. He's not saying that others weren't saved. Moses was clearly saved. Others were saved. But the point is that we were not sure which of those Israelites really were God's people. And that is a warning for you and I. He says, beware, don't make the same mistake. Don't repeat the madness of the Israelites. Don't rely on your privileges. Don't slip into sort of this complacency. See, my guess is that we'd say, you know, I'm okay, I've been saved. But so had the Israelites. I'm okay, I've been baptised. Well, so in one way had the Israelites. I'm okay because I eat the, the bread and I drink the wine, I take Lord's Supper. So in some way had the Israelites. I'm okay, I've put my hand up in a, in a service, I've put my hand up in a rally, I've done things for God, I, I've experienced God. So in some way had the Israelites. But the danger for them was that they ignore God and they just become complacent, thinking, I'm okay. And I want to say that is the, the real danger of Christianity, of grace. Uh, because Christianity is all about grace, it's about what God has done for you in Christ. But the danger of that is that you take those things for granted and you use grace and faith and Jesus like buzzwords but you don't really own it, you don't really live it. Or you think you can just get away with what you want to do because you're just self-centered, you're self-reliant because, hey, I'm forgiven in Christ. Or you say, hey, I pray. Well, good for you. But do you pray every day? And do you, do you, do you pray to, Jesus, to God as your heavenly Father? And today, are you saying, Jesus is my saviour? You say to me, oh, it's once saved, always saved. That is true. God chooses and God keeps. But is there, is there any evidence in your life today that Jesus Christ is your saviour and you're really saved. First, I'm warning you, don't rely on a past experience of God. Don't rely on some privilege that you just tick the box on. Don't become complacent. Please don't think, I'm okay. I want to know what's happening in your life today. The ongoing, week in, year to year, growing trust and obedience and love and joy in Jesus. A good test for complacency is this. Ask someone the question, you know, how did you become a Christian? Often ask that question, how did you become a Christian? And some people will just give me the facts. They'll say, oh, God's a creator, and sin entered the world, and Jesus died, and Jesus rose, and, uh, yeah, I'm forgiven in Christ. And I'll say, no, how did you become a Christian? And what is God doing in your life now? And today, what are you learning about God? And how are you loving Jesus more today? Don't just rest on, on facts of the past. What is your relationship with Jesus like today? 
That's the first warning. Our churches are full of complacent people who rely on some past experience, but there's no daily, weekly, yearly relationship with Jesus. There's two things I love about being the youngest child. Uh, the first thing is that you can get away with anything. Uh, the second thing is that you just learn from mistakes. You just watch your brother and sister do the wrong thing and then you learn what to do and what not to do. And that's a great lesson in life. You learn from other people's mistakes. And that's the same with God and his church. These events aren't just historical events. God doesn't take sadistic pleasure in recording failures. These are an act of grace and mercy so that we can sit up, take notice and avoid the same error. Let's look at verse 6. These things occurred as examples to keep us, the Corinthian church and church by the bridge, from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Or down to verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for, for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. See, like the Corinthians, we, we live in the last days. Like the Corinthians, we think that we're secure. We think we're standing firm. Let me say, I've seen it so many times in ministry. One day, people are all for Jesus. They're here at church every week. And then suddenly something happens. Something or, or someone happens. And they disappear from church and you phone them, they don't return your phone calls, and they stop coming to church, stop coming to connect groups, you follow them up, and then suddenly they're nowhere. And in case you think I'm just scaring you, in case you think, Paul, I don't need this right now, I challenge you to sit down and just think about people that you know and you love who used to follow Jesus, but now they're nowhere. I did that this afternoon. I just sat down, I timed it for three minutes, and this is what I came up with. List. I wrote down 52. Now, of course, I'm a minister, so I know more of those people, but you know, I challenge you to go and do that. People who once claimed to follow Jesus. And when I went through this list, what was the common cause? In one word, it was idolatry. Idolatry. Whether it's relationships or work or money or sport or image or identity, these people all put their trust in something that took them away from God and onto themselves. And that's our second warning tonight, a warning against idolatry. Look at verses four, uh, 6 to 14 with me. There's four incidents from history, and they're all about idolatry. Uh, verse 7, the golden calf. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, that the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan reverie. I don't know whether you were struck when Lucky read that reading. Moses is up the mountain. God's people have just been delivered. They've been carried on eagles' wings. Uh, God is speaking to them the commandments. And down the hill, these wretched people are, are making idols. They're taking gold. They're taking earrings. They're building a calf. They're dancing and they're drinking. And they're just saying, get lost, God. Or, or the sexual immorality of verse 8. We shouldn't commit sexual immorality as some of them did. That refers to the incident in Numbers 25. It was a time when the, the Moabite women seduced the Israelite men. And they put on the short skirts and they flirted outrageously and, and God's men said, well, I'm okay. I can't be the fun. And what did God do? Verse 8. In one day, 23,000 of them died. 
It's like God wiping out Kerberlin, North Sydney, Neutral Bay, Cremorne in one day. Uh, the third instance in verse 9 is, again, it's idolatry, it's questioning God's authority in verse 9. We shouldn't test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Uh, verse 10, they grumble against God and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by a destroying angel. That could be Numbers 14 where they grumbled against God and everybody under the age of 21 was killed. Or it could be number 16 where pride and envy and grumbling kicks in. They say, why God? God, you'd be better if you do this. We know you better. We know best God. Why don't you do what we want, God? And God killed 15,000 of them. Now remember verse 11 and 12? They were written for us. They were written for us so that we would not slip into idolatry. Verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Get rid of it. Run away from it. I reckon we struggle with idolatry. We struggle to know what idolatry really is. Uh, with Israel, it's clear. You know, they build a golden calf and they dance around that. Uh, with Corinth, it's pretty clear what their idols were. They, they eat food sacrificed to, to pagan gods and uh, they visit the prostitute temples. It's clear what their idols are. What's an idol for us? Uh, an idol is anything that we focus on, that we worship, that we hold in the highest regard above God. So God is our creator. We are created beings. We, God gave us creation to enjoy, but to enjoy creation as we worship him as God, as we love him as God, as we adore him as God, not worship those things instead of God. And idolatry is when anything grabs our time, our energy, our, our money, our love, our dreams more than God. And it's a sin. Uh, the Ten Commandments. No other God before me uh, and do not make an idol for yourself. And all the other eight flow off that. And no stealing, no lying, no sexual immorality, no murder. They hang off those two. Don't make an idol. And Paul is saying, he's warning us, please stop the idolatry. Stop worshipping sex. Uh, stop worshipping yourself. Stop worshipping uh, your sport. Stop worshipping your home. Stop worshipping your job. Don't let someone or, or something be what you pour your time, energy, money and self into as though that thing will save you. So what are your idols? I just listed a few. Sport teams, sex life, your income, your body, your job. Your house, your car, your clothes, your image, your marriage, your kids' family, your fitness, your entertainment, your surf, the beach, your intellect. Let me say, none of those are bad things. They're all good things. In and of themselves, they're good things. So to be married is a good thing, but, but to worship your husband or to worship your wife or to see your spouse as, as your purpose in life, that's idolatry. And to have a job is to, a good thing. But when you find your identity and your purpose and your existence in your job, then your jobs become your idol. Uh, to look after your body is important. To, but to find your worth and your security in your body and your image, then your body has become an idol. Uh, that's idolatry. Good things being elevated to the place of God's. Good things becoming the focus of your existence. They become almost your saviour. Your meaning, your hope, your satisfaction is in those things. 
rather than Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says in verse 14, flee. Run as fast as you can from these things. Why? Because they'll take you away from God and lead you straight to hell. Now let's get uncomfortable, if you're not already. Let's get even more uncomfortable. Let me ask you some questions. What is your, what's your greatest fear in life? What are you most afraid of in life? That will show you what your idol is. If you're sitting there thinking, I'm really afraid of being single to the day I die. Then your life and your purpose and your meaning all hangs on finding a spouse as if the spouse will really give you meaning and purpose and, and save you. And marriage becomes your idol. I'm really afraid of being unattractive. You know, your body, your looks, your, your wardrobe, that's what your saviour is. It's become your idol. I'm really afraid, afraid of failure. I'm really afraid of people not liking me. And you elevate you know, your, your job or, or your friendships to, be, to, to an idol status. What do you fear most? That will tell you what your idol is. What do you talk about most? What do you spend your time talking about? Work, sport, family, kids, success? How do you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Paul, I live in McMahon's Point, as though the place where I live identifies me or something. Hi, uh, I'm, I'm Ernie, I've got three kids, as though my, my, my identity is found in my kids. What do you talk about most? What comes out of your mouth? That will show you what your idol is. What do you sacrifice most for in life. You know, where do you spend most of your time? Do you invest most of your time in your job, in, in a particular sport, in an image or a family member? Where does most of your money go? Do you make a massive sacrifice to pay for a big mortgage? Maybe house has become your idol. This is a good question. Where do you run to for comfort? When times are really, really tough, where do you turn to for comfort and support? Many of you know the last two months have been really tough for me personally. And I've been shocked this week that actually what I've turned to is, is exercise and friends. But what about God? Where do you turn to when the really tough times and the really sad times, where do you devote your time and your energy? Or another question, what, what causes you to be angry with God? What causes you to be angry? Go and admit it. What causes you to be angry with God? There's something that you really want, something you expected to happen by now, and you're annoyed with God because he hasn't given what you wanted. I expected to be married by now. I expected to have a house by now. I expected to have a child by now. I expected to have a promotion by now. We make our plans. We tell God what we want. We make this thing or this person our, our saviour, our purpose. And when God won't let you have it, you're frustrated. That's your idol. And my last question is this. What do you want more than anything else in life? What do you want more than anything else in life? I wonder how many of us are sitting there thinking, I want to be more like Christ. I want to be more holy. And how many are thinking, I want to be rich, I want a 
bigger house, I want kids, I want a better job, I want to be successful, I want to be healthy, I want to be skinny, I want to be cool, I want to be intelligent, I want more friends. Submit it. I guess for most of us, as I went through those questions, the same few things popped into your head in most of those questions. That's your idol. Uh, that's your substitute saviour that you could subtly put your trust and your hope in. The person or the thing that you think will make you happy but will lead you away from God and away from Christ. Verse 14, Paul says, My dear friends, do you spot that, that, that cherished words, my dear friends, my loved ones, flee from idols. Break down your idols. You know what they are. You know what idols are taking root in your heart right now. Get rid of it. And don't play the victim card and say, I have no choice, I can't help. We do have choices, we can help it. The way out is to be so taken up in loving and wondering at the greatness and the mercy of Jesus that everything else fades into comparison. It's called clinging to the cross every day. Cast your eyes upon Jesus, look into his beautiful face and the things of the world will, will grow strangely dim in his presence. The other two warnings, complacency and idolatry, and I'm warning us, as a church, as your friend, as your pastor, please don't slip into those things. How can you do it? How can you avoid it? As I close, two quick things. A command and a comfort. The command is this, just be disciplined in your Christian life. Be disciplined in your Christian life. That's how Paul started in chapter 9, verse 24. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as you get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. It's that picture of the athlete in the game. Why does the athlete... Go into strict training, verse 25. Why does he watch his diet and his stretching and his sleep and his exercise? Why does he do it? It's all about getting that medal, getting that finishing line, being successful and winning. And the irony is this. You know, ten years later, no one remembers who won the gold medal in the 200 metre butterfly. These people get up for week after week, month after month, at 4.30 every day for 10 years. You have your 15 minutes of fame and it doesn't last. But they're disciplined and they're strict. And as a Christian we're in a race but the prize is much better, verse 25. We get a crown that will last forever. We have eternal crown, we have our names in the book of life. And Paul knows that he needs to be disciplined and dedicated and determined to live a Christian life which is avoiding complacency and avoiding idolatry. Please don't drift. Please don't be aimless. Please run with discipline. Make time for Jesus. Make sacrifices for Jesus. Uh, be godly and get people to, to, to hold you accountable for your godliness. Make choices for God. Run the race. Paul is saying, so get off your butt and work. Stop whinging. Stop being the, the armchair person who criticises everybody else but does nothing for themselves get into training and start living for Jesus and the comfort is there in verse 13 our great, our great kitchen calendar verse 10 verse 13 no temptation has seized you except what is common to man God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear 
but when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. See, we are tempted to idolatry, we are tempted to complacency, but God is faithful, verse 13. He will provide, he'll provide your comfort, he'll provide your support, he will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. He'll provide a way out. He may not take you out of the situation, but he will provide. The answer is not your idol, the answer is not your job or your wife or your kids or your home, the answer is Jesus, the crucified one, the Lord of glory. Now, um, 22 years since the Challenger spaceship exploded mid-air. That's over 8,000 days. I just wonder whether those top managers who just said, no, 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 we're going to go ahead, and they refuse to listen to the warning, I wonder how they feel every day. If only we'd listened. If only we'd listened to the warning. I am pleading with your pastor and your friend. Please, beware of complacency, beware of idolatry, and just look to Jesus. Calvin said this, only one life, it will soon pass, and only what's done for Jesus will last. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and we thank you for your promise of a, of a crown for those who complete the race, for those who keep trusting you. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for these warnings. Thank you that you've recorded them in history and in your scriptures so that we can take notice. Uh, Lord, give us time today or during the week to think about ways where we've slipped into complacency or we've held something or someone as the highest priority in our life above you. And give us the, the willpower and the determination and the desire to repent of that and to put our hope firmly in Jesus. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. Uh, it's hardly been a light word this evening, has it? It's been a heavy word. Uh, the temptation when you hear a, a sermon is always to kind of switch off and move on. Uh, in a little while, we're going to, um, in a moment or so, we're going to uh, actually confess to God. Uh, we'll take that chance to say together, uh, and admit our sin and find forgiveness. Uh, it'll be a chance as well, uh, I suppose, to find comfort as we speak of God's mercy. Uh, but before we do that, uh, Paul just prayed that we'd find time to actually reflect a little. Uh, why not take a moment now uh, just to think a little about uh, where you've been complacent? <laughs>